Before I read the second half of the passage from Matthew's Gospel, I want to warn you that it's even worse than what Dave read. Like many Bible passages, if you read it in isolation, without understanding the context, and it is as if it as though it weren't part of a larger message of good news, you might think it is the opposite of good news. So hang with me, please. We're, we're going to get through this. One side note, when I read the passage, I'm going to substitute the original Greek word Gehenna for the word that our Pew Bible translates very poorly as hell. Gehenna was not hell. Gehenna was the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem that burned perpetually, just like the great tire fire on the Simpsons. And when we get to the part where we say, we celebrate the written word of scripture, I promise it's going to make sense by the end. So this is Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, verses 27 through 37, also at page 4 in the New Testament section of your Pew Bibles. You have heard it, you have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into Gehenna. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said that there said to those of ancient times, You shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is God's footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Please join me in prayer. God of grace, like the Pharisees, we can be captivated by correctness, intent on right answers. As we turn to your word, don't let our desire for information overtake our need for transformation. Let us hear your word and be moved to follow Jesus. Amen. Tuesday's Valentine's Day. Some people are big fans of Valentine's Day and some aren't, and I'm not just talking about guys. Personally, I'm not nuts about the romance according to schedule aspect of Valentine's Day. If you need to be reminded by a Hallmark holiday to be romantic, isn't that, well, less romantic? (laughs) Besides, Valentine's Day feels something like a trap for the unwary. 
You know something's, something's expected of you, but you're not sure what it is. Are flowers and a card enough? Should you get the candy too? Or are flowers and candy cliched and unimaginative and what you're really supposed to do is rent a yacht for a moonlight champagne dinner for two? Or book a surprise trip to Paris? See, somewhere between flowers and a, and a trip to Paris, that's your dilemma. <laughs> Valentine's Day seems designed to set us up to fail. This was something like the state of the Torah, of Jewish law, in the first century, when Jesus gave his Sermon on the Mount. There were 613 laws in the first five books of the Old Testament, the five books known as the Torah. 613 laws to remember and keep in order to be righteous, to be right with God. The Talmud written commentaries on the law that interpreted and expanded them wasn't in place yet, but in Jesus' time, there was already a large body of oral interpretation developed by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The point of these interpretations was to make sure that no one would break God's law even by mistake. So, for example, to avoid taking the Lord's name in vain, they refused to pronounce God's name at all. To avoid violating the Sabbath, they outlawed 39 activities that might be construed as work, including the healing that got Jesus into trouble on a number of occasions. The prohibition against healing wasn't the only problem. Many people, especially poor, working-class people, didn't have the luxury of following the rules meticulously. Do you remember Tevye's song, If I Were a Rich Man, in, in Fiddler on the Roof? One of the lines is, If I were rich, I'd have the time that I like to sit in the synagogue and pray and maybe have a seat by the eastern wall, and I'd discuss the holy books with the learned men seven hours every day, and that would be the sweetest thing of all. Studying biblical law, studying Torah so closely that you knew all the details and nuances, was reserved for people, well, for men specifically, for people with the time and the leisure to do it. An ordinary working stiff was too busy making a living to study and know the minute details of Torah, and also too busy and too poor to make following the letter of the law a priority. So what had evolved was a two-tier system of people who could afford to think of themselves as righteous and then everybody else, who was a sinner. In Jesus' time, sinner just meant someone who did not follow the laws of Torah. Later in the Christian tradition, sinner came to mean everybody and anybody because nobody is flawless, and there are lots of problems with this, but we'll save that for another sermon. The point is that some people could be in with God because they followed the rules, while the rest were out with God. How could an ordinary person, how could an ordinary person's righteousness ever surpass that of a professional holy man? People were set up for failure. Jesus is saying there are good reasons, important reasons, to follow the rules. But following the rules for the rules' sake isn't the goal. Loving God 
and loving your neighbor as yourself is the goal. Each one of the points that begins with Jesus saying, you have heard it said, and concludes with his saying, but I say to you, each one is about relationships between people. God cares about our relationships with people. So, it's not enough just to refrain from murder. We should also treat each other with respect, and that means not speaking hateful words. It's not enough to avoid physically committing adultery, which, by the way, was more of a property crime in the first century Judea than a moral failure. Adultery meant that one man had essentially used another man's property, his wife, which dishonored the man with the wife. But Jesus introduces the radical notion that we should also not objectify others by thinking of them as just a means to satisfy our physical desires by lusting after them. It's not enough to follow the letter of the law regarding divorce. We should not treat people as disposable and should make sure to provide for the most vulnerable. In Jesus' culture, and still today, that often meant women and children. It's not enough to stop ourselves from giving our word or saying, I swear to God, when we don't mean it. We should also speak and act truthfully in all of our dealings so that we don't need to make oaths at all. So do you see what I mean? All the hyperbole about cutting off body parts and burning in Gehenna, and that is hyperbole, it is ancient Middle Eastern hyperbole, all this serves to magnify just how important our relationships are to God. I suspect this runs contrary to the way most people think about God and God's laws. Many people think of God as being more like Santa Claus, and I don't mean in a good way. I mean in that he sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake kind of way. Think about it. How many of you grew up with or even still carry around an image of God that's something like that stern Santa Claus, always ready to judge us or even punish us for breaking God's laws? Jesus' words on divorce seem especially out of touch today. When 40 to 50 percent of marriages end in divorce, Jesus sounds pretty judgmental about an awful lot of people, and so do the Christian churches that still apply this as an inflexible for all time rule. The Presbyterian Church does not, by the way. Not only the legal implications of divorce, but also the cultural expectations of marriage are entirely different today than they were in the first century. Today, we know that divorce can be necessary for the spiritual, emotional, or physical self-preservation of a person. Choosing life for ourselves or, and our children may mean leaving a dysfunctional or abusive marriage. And while this choice is always painful, it may be part of a healing process for ourselves and those we love. What Jesus is actually doing here with his admonitions about divorce, not to mention lying, is pointing to a radical mutuality in marriage that was centuries, maybe millennia, beyond its time, ahead of its time. When we think about fidelity in marriage, 
The focus usually is on sexual intimacy, and it's that, of course, but it's much more. Faithfulness in marriage is about the promises we keep and the choices that we make for the sake of forging the bond between the partners in the marriage. Fidelity is about thinking of we as well as I. And in our American culture, where we elevate individualism practically to a cult status, the central danger is that we tend to commit to others only when it's in our own personal interest. For the survival of marriages and societies, we need to keep a balance between respecting the needs of individuals and considering the needs of community, the community that is a married couple and the larger community. Rolf Jacobson writes that Joel Osteen's best-selling book, Your Best Life Now, would be a lot closer to the biblical vision if it had been titled instead, Your Neighbor's Best Life Now. That's why Jesus intensifies the law in today's reading, to help us avoid seeing the law as merely drawing moral boundaries and instead to alert us to our responsibility to care for those around us. We can too easily discriminate, injure, neglect, or speak poorly of a neighbor, all the while saying, after all, I haven't murdered anybody. So Jesus intensifies the law to make us more responsible for our neighbor's well-being. A man named Frank tells this story from his childhood. When he was about eight years old, he started arguing with his sister. Before long, the arguing turned into pushing and shoving, and soon enough, Frank had his young sister pinned to the ground with his fist raised in the air, and at that moment, his mother comes into the room and tells him to stop it. Frank rears up as only an eight-year-old can and declares with his fist still in the air, she's my sister, I can do anything I want to. And as a parent only can, Frank's mom swooped across the room, towered over him, and said, She's my daughter. No, you can't. That's what Jesus is saying about the law. It's God's gift to protect and care for God's children. No, you can't hoard everything. No, you can't discriminate and exclude. No, you can't violate and exploit. Because she is my daughter, he is my son. Jesus said it loud and clear in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere, all God's rules for human living are summed up in love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else springs from this. That means that to be a Christian in the way of Jesus, we have to swim upstream in today's culture Share what you have with anyone who needs it, love your enemies, live generous lives, tell the truth, act toward each other the way God acts towards you. Sacrifice something big for something good. This week I read about a move to reframe Valentine's Day, and it's a way that even I can get behind. The movement calls itself the Revolutionary Love Project, and it has addressed a declaration to the people of faith and moral conscience. We declare revolutionary love as the call of our times, it begins. It continues, 
We declare our love for all who are in harm's way, including refugees, immigrants, Muslims, Sikhs, LGBTQI people, black people, Latinos, the indigenous, and the poor. We stand with millions of people around the globe rising up to end violence against women and girls, who are often the most vulnerable within marginalized communities. We vow to see one another as brothers and sisters and fight for a world where every person can flourish. We declare love even for our opponents. We vow to oppose all executive orders and policies that threaten the rights and dignity of any person. We call upon our elected officials to join us. We will fight not with violence or vitriol, but by challenging the cultures and institutions that promote hate. In so doing, we will challenge our opponents through the ethic of love. We declare for ourselves, we declare love for ourselves. We will practice the dignity and care in our homes that we want for all of us. We will protect our capacity for joy. We will nurture our bodies and spirits. We will rise and dance. We, people of faith and moral conscience, reclaim Valentine's Day as a day of revolutionary love, a day of rising. We commit to fight for social justice through the ethic of love, love for others, our opponents, and ourselves. On Valentine's Day, we will rise up across the U.S. and around the world in music, poetry, dance, and action to declare that revolutionary love is the call of our times. That's worth at least a dozen roses and a box of candy in my book. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.